From religion to wrestling, gumbo to grits, politics to poetry, and all things southern in between, this is Take on the South. Produced by the Institute for Southern Studies and hosted by the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of South Carolina, Take on the South examines the highs and lows of the American South, examines the truths and fictions of the country's most distinctive region, and picks the brains of some of its most accomplished students. To understand the South, you need to take it on, and that's what we'll be doing. Join us as we Take on the South. Welcome to Take on the South. I'm Mark Smith, Director of the Institute for Southern Studies, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today we are honoured to talk with Constance B. Schultz, Distinguished Professor Emerita from the Department of History at the University of South Carolina. Connie, as she is universally known, was co-director of the University of South Carolina's highly regarded public history programme in which she taught archives administration. She has also served as a staff researcher for the Booker T. Washington Papers, as an NHPRC Fellow in Documentary Editing at the Documentary History of the First Federal Congress, as the final managing editor of the Papers of Henry Lawrence, and as Project Director for the Pinckney Papers Project, arguably one of the University of South Carolina's most distinguished and successful digital edited project collections. She is the author of several books and articles and is conspicuously the 2022 winner of the Robert Kelly Memorial Award, which is given by the National Publications and Records Commission, and it honours distinguished achievements by individuals, institutions and other entities for making history relevant to individuals outside of academia. I know her as a valued colleague, a superb historian, a gifted teacher and as a friend. Connie Schultz, welcome to Take on the South. Thank you. I, that's a hard introduction to follow, Mark. <laughs> well, fully Can deserved. Can I make one correction? Please do. Because um, it's easy to confuse them. Our funding is from the National Historical Publications and Records Commission, NHPRC. But the Kelly Award is actually from the National Conference on Public History, the NCPH. And they need to be credited. It's, it's why we're here with a public history program to begin with is the support of and the and all of the links of the NCPH. Well, the thank National you for Council. that. I, I, I appreciate that correction. Well, they're easy to confuse. They are easy to confuse. people do because <laughs> the, they, they have all the same letters. <laughs> they do. And the they're quite acronym. a lot of letters too, aren't yeah. they? <laughs> um, either way, a, a very distinguished award and congratulations. We're just delighted for you. So today we're going to focus our conversation on the Pinckney Papers Project, um, what it is, what it does, how it's done. But before we get into that, let's share with our listeners something of your background. Where did you come from, Connie? When did you come to the University of South Carolina? What was your early work in public history? Things of that nature. Okay, well... um I was a Presbyterian minister's daughter, so I, I used to say when people asked me where I came from that I was an itinerant preacher's daughter, and that meant that my family lived all over. Mm. Um, I was born in Kentucky, uh, in Louisville, which I can say like a Louisvillian should, mm-hmm. um, but we lived variously in Chicago and downstate Illinois, in upstate New York. My husband, Carl, and I both went to undergraduate 
um, College of Worcester in Ohio, and then graduate school at the University of Cincinnati, which is where my PhD is from. I did know that, and I know that because you always have this amazingly bright and beautiful, sumptuous gown at graduation. A beautiful, bright cardinal red. It's remarkable. And yeah. I remember asking you, <laughs> yeah. where on earth is that from? Because Cincinnati, it's just gorgeous. University of Cincinnati. Um, and my mentor there, um, a mentor, not although he didn't advise my doctoral dissertation, was Lewis Harlan who moved then from from there to Maryland, uh, and it was while he was at Maryland that he edited the Booker T. Washington papers. But Lewis remained a mentor throughout my professional career until his death, a very distinguished historian. Um, uh, But I was interested throughout. What I wrote for my MA thesis for Lewis was a, a, a paper, a master's thesis, on... The Samuel Dickstein, the Jewish congressman from the Lower East Side of New York who became the creator of the House Committee on Un-American Activities long before it was a famous committee uh, created to investigate Nazism, which, of course, it completely switched to become an investigator of communism. But the bottom line was that I was interested in how politics and religion interplay. And so my doctoral dissertation for another faculty member uh, at Cincinnati was on um, the, the religious ideas of Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and how they changed over time, how their religious ideas began to influence their political ones, but then as they had divergent experiences in politics, they diverged greatly uh, in some ways in religion, but in their old age they came back to mm-hmm. the same point. It's a very ambitious project, that isn't well, it? Well, um, unfortunately, although I thought it was a good one, I never got a publisher for it. Is that right? And But I did publish several articles. Yes, out. I thought you did. So I that's my background. Good, um, good. Carl and I were in the Washington, D.C. greater area for his job as a toxicologist chemist, um, and I was busy raising three children. Uh, and the, the generosity of people in the greater Washington area, University of Maryland faculty, um, I was part of a really interesting group uh, that was organized by Edie Mayo at the Smithsonian Museum of uh, American History, um, that we called ourselves the Friday Lunch Bunch because, in the, I'm talking the early 70s, um, because whenever somebody was in town uh, that was doing research, she would invite them to the Smithsonian to have lunch with those of us who were local. And the people who were part of that were all women historians. This is before women had a key role in the academy. Uh, Most of them were what we now would call public historians. They were women working at the National Park Service, working at the Library of Congress or the National Archives as specialists in women's history, Uh, women working for the various military history organizations. But um, we actually helped co-sponsor back when, I can't even remember her name, the first Wonder Woman film. Mm -hmm. 
the star, the Wonder Woman, came to Washington, and we said, okay, we will co-sponsor her appearance uh, as public historians, uh, and for that we were the Washington women historians. So that was my introduction to public history, was meeting a number of people in the 70s who were doing it. Um, I also worked briefly for Lewis on the Booker T. Washington papers, and on the strength of that was able... Um, NHPRC then used to fund a, a one-year fellowship to train documentary editors. And I lived in Washington, and the staff of the first Federal Congress editorial project got one of those fellowships and offered it to me because of my experience in the early national period. Um, and that was a wonderful introduction to all kinds of resources because they put me to work on a project to identify and find out anything you could find out about the roughly 700 individual um, survivors, veterans of the Revolutionary War, who in the 1789 to 91, 92, were petitioning Congress because they felt that they were owed something for their service. Um, and so that laid a background for what I'm doing now, actually. Indeed, there's a kind of po poetic quality to this, isn't there? So then, when did you come to the University of South Carolina? I came in 1985. Um, because I had had experience as the NHPRC fellow, literally working within the National Archives with the NHPRC staff research assistants, um, and I had had some other experience that were rel relevant, we at USC had a public history program from 1975 onward. It was actually founded by Walter Edgar, formerly the director of the Institute, um, but shortly before I came, but by the time I was hired, Mike Scardival was the director of the program. But the history department and the library school had just agreed on creating a joint program in archives where students could get both an MA in history, in public history. We then called it applied history, but that's OK. Um, and an MLIS in library and information science. And because I had a foot in both camps, I was both an historian who did research and could train public historians in research, and I had worked in an archives. Uh, I knew how they organized things and why they organized them that way. And so they hired me to be the co-director with the Bob Williams in the library school of this brand new joint program. And Incidentally, the second faculty member in the public history program. Uh, and I had that, I was one of two in the public history program from 1985 till my official retirement in 2008. Indeed. So you, you bring this wealth of experience, you come to the University of South Carolina as a pre existing public history program. And then it starts to take off even more to become the preeminent public history program and, and you are no small part of that story and central to this is the Pinckney Papers project. Well I think yes and no. Um, I think central to it was that this was a place where editing was always part 
of what we did here. Um, the, the Calhoun papers were edited here and were still going on when I came. Uh, and the Lawrence papers were nearing their completion and were still going on. And actually David Chestnut at the Lawrence papers um, was central in pushing the editorial community toward the necessity, not just the opportunity, but the necessity that editors needed to become aware of and use the increasingly available digital tools that were available to scholars, researchers, editors in creating the, the history that we do. That was very cutting edge at the time, wasn't it? It was exce- exceptionally. David, and, David got grants from NHPRC to support something called the Model Editions Partnership, and that was in the early 1980s. That's extremely uh, early, uh, isn't it? Very early for and to say what would a digital edition look, look like? like? Right. How would it be different from print? I, I have a good friend in the editorial um, community, Holly Schulman, who edits the digital edition of the papers of Dolly Madison, and Holly coined the phrase to describe digital editions that uh, it's kind of like saying. Television is not radio with pictures. <laughs> um, digital editions are not books online. They are much more, but they're also different. Yeah, I've always, I've always sort of associated with the public history program here with precisely this kind of deep editorial experience, mm-hmm. the Calhoun papers, the Lawrence papers, mm-hmm. and it's very cutting-edge presence. This, these are the signature marks, I think, of the program. Let's move in into the Pinkney Papers project itself. Um, when did that start, and how did you come to it? Well, there's a good story with that. I'm it's glad. Okay I like good stories. Story. Um, Holly Schulman at the Digital Dolly Madison has is a longtime good friend, um, and uh, she got into Dolly Madison um, as the the wife of the editor of the James Madison papers and asked the question, well, what are you doing with the women? Mm-hmm. And the answer was, not much. Mm-hmm, I bet. When she and I had talked and we had said, you know, we really need to begin thinking about editing the papers of the, revolution, the revolutionary era. There are the Founding Fathers Papers Project, but they all had wives and mothers and sisters and aunts and daughters and cousins, many of whom were extremely interesting and prolific writers, um, we need to begin editing those papers. One of the things that brought the public history program to prominence was I got the opportunity and started what came to be known as the England Field School, uh, better known as Comparative Public History, the U.S. and the U.K., in 1990. I was in... England, in the north of England, taking a train with that year's class in 2006 down to London. And I get this international phone call from Holly saying, we need to do papers of one of the women, and you're the one who's going to do the next one. I'm doing Dolly Madison. You're going to do Eliza Pinkney. (laughs) 
Well, that phone conversation went on for about 45 minutes because every time we went through a tunnel, we lost connection. We were on the train. Right, right. Um, But at the end, I agreed to submit a grant application initially to NEH. We didn't get it funded the first year, um, but I reapplied. And in 2008, literally the week that my teaching um, appointment retirement became effective the end of June, got a phone call from NEH. We have funded the papers of Eliza Lucas Pinkney and her daughter Harriet Pinkney Ori. How lovely. Hello. And it was quite a substantial amount of money, wasn't it? Well, um, over, I'm, I'm going to brag a little. Please if do. That's okay. We want you to brag. Since that initial grant in 2008, through the current grant that we just received a final grant, Um, to uh, preserve and provide access to the digital resources that we have created for 14, will be 15 years. Um, The total, the the recent one is another $100,000, but the total granted by NEH and NHPRC is well over a million and a half dollars. Now, over 15 years to support full-time staff, that's not a lot of money. That's true, that's true. But yeah. it is substantial. It is, and I mean, just for our listeners who, this is a, something a little bit in the weeds of, of higher education, but fundamentally the, the, the funding sources provided by the United States government, National Science Foundation, um, National Institute for Health, NEH, NEA, there's a huge disparity. So the NSF will give out millions of dollars, NIH tens of millions, and then we have the NEH and NEA and a variety of other. I will tell you that over a million dollars is a very significant amount of money, even if it is spread over years. 100,000 a year. 100,000 a year. (laughs) This is not bad. And this is really... There is a, a, a skill to writing grants that very few people have. You evidently have this skill because you've been so immensely successful in it. And I know that many people have their careers to, to thank for you. You've, you've, you've done a great deal, and uh, I just want to acknowledge that. So before we get into some of the internalities of how the Pinkney Papers have done, just for our listeners, we, we fully recognize that the Pinkneys are a very famous family. But could, for those folks who might not be familiar with them, could you give us quick thumbnail sketches of the folks who um, are in this project? Well, um, of the Pinckneys, not the people who are working on it. Right, okay. the Pinckneys, yes. Well, um, the Pinckneys were, were an extremely um, long-standing, across the 18th century, uh, leading elite slaveholding, owners of large quantities of land active in South Carolina government throughout the 18th century. Um, They're basically the the forerunners of our current, uh, of the ones that we are writing about, came in the 1690s. Um, They came in early on. They had large quantities of land. Um, they had important political roles. Uh, my edition focused first on the women. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting phenomenon because one of the descendants of this family, a woman named Elise Pinckney, 
um, who just recently died a couple of years ago. Um, Elise had found or knew about, because she didn't locate them, the, the, the South Carolina Historical Society had these diaries and knew perfectly well about the papers of the, actually the letter book of Eliza Lucas Pinckney. Eliza Lucas, who at 17 was brought to South Carolina by her father, George Lucas, and he had to go back to Antigua and left his 17-year-old in charge of his three plantations just south of Charleston. Remarkable. Uh, and she started a letter book telling her father what she was doing. Elise Pinckney, in 1972, published an edition of Eliza's letter book. And at that time, the whole field of women's history was just beginning to be professionally recognized and honored and there were no primary sources available as readers or for students or, um, or indeed researchers to use. And Eliza Pinckney's letter book became an iconic source for studying Southern women's history. Um, and I later was invited by Catherine Clinton to contribute a chapter on Eliza Lucas Pinckney um, after she married Charles Pinckney, the first of many Charles Pinckneys. Yes, yes. Um, uh, total confusion out in the world about which Charles Pinckney we're talking about. Indeed. But the bottom line was, I said, well, as I've looked at all this stuff, um, her daughter Harriet is not famous, but is equally interesting. Can I do a chapter? And that's actually the chapter that I eventually wrote for our colleague, um, Val Littlefield for the first volume of um, South Carolina Women. Um, and so we had both Eliza and Harriet, and I said, we need an edition of these ladies. And that's how we got started, was to do the Pinckney Women, because they had become important nationally and internationally to anybody who did Southern studies. I suspect that's the only time that the women came first. It is. How lovely, and how appropriate, too. Um, so what is the fundamental aim of your project? What does it aim to do? Is it, I mean, I, as you say, digital editions are, are different, right? There's a different, it's a different medium. But when, when you sort of pitch this to funding agencies, you know, what's your first line? It's like, we do this and this is what we do and why? Well, uh, the, the first line was to say these are important people, both Eliza and Harriet as the women, but then as we got into it saying uh, Eliza's sons and um, nephew are, the, are one of the series of founding fathers for whom there is no edition of their papers. Incredible. So our second edition was of the men, uh, Eliza's two sons, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, who was a candidate for president in two elections. Two elections, that's right. And uh, her, um, well, actually, there are a total of three elections, where one or the other, her second son, Thomas Pinckney, uh, younger son, they're Revolutionary War um, young military officers. Um, Charles Coatsworth is an aide-de-camp to George Washington. Uh, on the strength of that, they become... Um, Thomas is governor of South Carolina. Charles Coatsworth and his 
first cousin once removed, Charles Pinckney, um, are delegates from South Carolina to the Constitutional Convention. Thomas Pinckney presides over the ratification of the Constitution in South Carolina. They all three become um, diplomats. Uh, Thomas Pinckney becomes the minister plenipotentiary to um, England in 1792. His brother, Charles Coatsworth, becomes the minister to France in 1796 and is the lead negotiator in the famous or infamous XYZ affair. Um, Charles Pinckney, their cousin, becomes Jefferson's appointee to be minister to Spain in 1801. So these are important people, and that's the first pitch. They, they represent the beginnings of American diplomacy, of American military action, of, of a new kind of politics, because they lead the two rival national party system, um, Charles Coatsworth and Thomas, the Federalists. Um, Charles becomes a Jeffersonian Republican. So all of that's important. But the importance of a digital edition is twofold. Um, the first is that it allows us as editors to make the connections within the documents uh, much more fluid and open. If you open a letterpress volume of the George Washington Papers, you have to go to the index, and it will be 100 pages, and it will have main entries and then sub-entries and sub-sub-entries. Um, when you have a digital edition, where all of the data has been put into essentially a database, you can use the database as a tool to make sure that every time a person is mentioned in a letter and you put a pointer tag there with that person's name and then you write a brief identification of who that person is, that identification becomes a unique database reference, and every time that person shows up in any letter, you use the same pointer tag, and so you can both search across all the documents for a single person, but within a document, you will have identifications, depending on the size of the document, of dozens of people, who they are, where they came from. This becomes really important when we started providing name ID references to any named enslaved person. These are wealthy South Carolina elite slave owners. It, it's difficult to talk about that in this day and age. Why are you doing these wealthy slave-owning people? And our point is this is a way to bring to life people that they interacted with who are otherwise lost to history. So that would be my second is that we sell this to the funders on the idea that we can make available detailed information. We are up to over 700 named individual enslaved persons on the extended Pinckney family plantations and their dealings, people left in wills, people sold and transferred with the sale of a plantation. Um, and one of our graduate assistants, um, Zoe Horekny, has actually put that information specifically into a what is going to be, we hope, very soon available as a website 
through the University of South Carolina's uh, digital libraries. Um, she's created this on a spreadsheet basis, but it allows us to show family groups um, if the documents have details about their health, um, about when they were born, when they die, um, what their jobs were and what they did. All of these enslaved people can be resurrected from an anonymity in a way that's really important to say this is a society that has people at all levels and we need to know about them. This is a thoroughly restorative project in all of its texture and I think that's entirely right. Um, so just just so that people are clear, you, which papers, which original letters are you working from? I mean, as, as I read it, you have to harvest these letters from an enormous range of repositories and libraries and archives from around the world. Um, and then you, you collect them or you collect copies of them. Then you sit down with them, organize them in a certain way, and then begin the process of transcribing them. Is, is that an accurate description? Absolutely right. You have done your homework, Mark. <laughs> well, I've known you for a long time. so. Uh, well, the bottom line is, the because they were well-known, and they are extensively um, dispersed through the generations. The papers by or to any of the members of the Pinckney family are widely scattered. The main body are at the South Carolina Historical Society and at the um, South Carolina Library here on campus. But because the men in particular were military and diplomatic, huge quantities of documents at the National Archives in Washington, D.C., but also in the National Archives of Spain, France, and England, we did searches in over 100 repositories in the U.S. from California to Maine. Um, and we gathered that, um, accessioned them is the archival term, uh, we acquired them and accessioned them by getting, if at all possible, digital copies. Now, I, for instance, was of my staff the one able to travel. I visited probably 30 or 40 such repositories, took in initially my digital camera and later my uh, um, phone, we also were able, say, at the Library of Congress, which has major collections. I think we, we used about 20 collections of different papers at the Library of Congress. And they had a, a good scanner, so we could use their scanner. We asked the repositories we couldn't visit to send us digital, sometimes a PDF. Um, but we collected everything as a digital image of, in the end, we gathered over 15,000 documents. Now, some of those are duplicates. So Thomas Pinckney wrote a letter to the Secretary of State as Minister Plenipotentiary. Um, he kept a letter book copy. Um, he wrote or had his secretary write three copies to send by different ships in the hopes that one of them would get across the Atlantic during time of war. So there we might have for that one document, one unique document, we might have four copies. Now, on the, on the flip side, do you ever encounter uh, letters that you'd missed first time round? So, uh, for example, the, does the, the British Public Records Office say, well, hang on a minute, we, we found this? Or Yeah, 
Uh, in fact, w- our current assistant editor, Chad Allen, is particularly good at nosing out uh, documents that we have missed now that we are near the end. <laughs> I should say, Mark, it's important to, for people to know that's too many. The current funding system is no longer allowing something like the Thomas Jefferson Papers to go on for 60 years. They want us up and done. So we are only publishing total. We published 750 documents for Eliza and Harriet. We are now at 3,500 documents for the statesmen, the Charles Coatsworth, Thomas, and Charles, which means we were highly selective. So my job was to go through them and select, with the help of my staff, which ones were important enough to publish. Then staff, undergraduates, a number of really wonderful undergraduates um, did transcriptions. We then, because you have to be sure your transcription is accurate, we do a verification process that's called tandem reading. One person sits there with the image of the document the other sits there with the, with the um, transcription of it and literally read it word by word, spelling out if it's a, a strange spelling, mentioning capital letters, making sure the punctuation is correct, because scholars need to be able to trust that what we have transcribed is an absolutely verifiable, reliable image or alternative to the manuscript. And one of the things that we've provided is gathering things from over 100 repositories, many of which are not yet available online. People aren't putting it all online. So this is, this is painstaking work that rewards an eye for detail. And, I, you know, if, if people are so inclined, um, they can go to the University of South Carolina website where the Pinckney Papers you, 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 can, you can see some of them, correct? Okay. Well, yes. Yes and no. There are two answers to that, Mark. The first answer is we are actually published by the University of Virginia Press. They were the first university press involved in scholarly documentary editing to say, okay, we'll take a chance. We think the digital world is the world to come. A good, a good so bet. They yeah. have a digital publication division that they call Rotunda. Now, they're a university press. They don't have a lot of money. They sell their books. And so they also sell the license to the access to all of the digital editions that they publish. But individuals can get a very inexpensive, they sell them to universities uh, with large numbers of students at a very high price. I'm sure they do. But an individual, uh, for instance, all of the Pinckney papers are available through Rotunda at the University of Virginia Press for $130 for all of your life. You get a license. And that license is all four of the Statesman volumes and all of the Eliza Harriet um, edition, which, if you bought them as books, would probably encompass eight to ten 600-page books that you'd pay $100 a piece for. That's right. So it's got a good deal, really. It it? is a good deal, but you do have to sign up and pay. The Internet is not all free. It is not. It is not. When you spend some time with these papers, one of the principal signatures of them is just how much these people were global in their, their travels and their reach. And 
you know, there is a tendency for us to look back and think, well, the, you know, the past, the people didn't travel very much. Quite a static place, really. Um, no, I mean, this is genuinely tra- this is transatlantic history and beyond that, isn't it, Connie? That's right. Well, um, they have friends that they correspond with throughout Europe, but they travel. Um, one of my favorite parts of the um, Eliza Pinkney Harriet O'Ree edition is. In 1793, when Eliza was dying of breast cancer, her three children decided that they should get her up to Philadelphia where there was a surgeon who could do a radical mastectomy and cure it. Well, so Harriet bundles up her daughter and her two nieces and her dying mother and takes a ship up to Philadelphia where Eliza indeed dies. And then Harriet... Her brothers say, well, it's kind of hot down here in South Carolina. This is June. Why don't you stay up there where it's cool, essentially? And so she continues her journey all the way up the Hudson River, across the White Mountains, all the way to Maine, and then over land in 1793. And she keeps a detailed travel journal of traveling over land from South Carolina to Maine and back in 1793. Amazing. And then she kept another one. She went back when her grandson was at the Naval Academy in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, the Naval, not Academy, the um, establishment there. She goes back in 1815, right after the War of 1812. It's kind of a War of 1812 tourist stopping where all the important battles were. Um, Again, up the coast by land, uh, up the Hudson River, this time on a steamboat, on one of the Fulton steamboats, over to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and therefore Maine, uh, and then back. And she was, um, she was in 1815, she was in her 60th year. Ronnie, you've essentially retired, although I find that hard to believe, just because you're such a presence and you have such an influence um, what's next for Connie Schultz? Well, I literally am uh, trying to retire again. Um, the first thing is that the Pinckney Papers will go on for one more year. Our last grant is an important one, and this is the second answer to your earlier question. Um, the funders at NHPRC said, we think you've generated a lot of important data, and it's all in a digital format. And since... The American people paid for it. We want you to be kind of, uh, again, cutting edge, devise a system for other digital editions for how to preserve your digital resources. So this grant that we've just got will be to preserve, and this will be done at the University of South Carolina's library system um, through um, something they're already working on for long-term deep archive storage of important historical materials. But they also wanted us to provide access to it. So all of those documents we didn't publish, for which we have images collected from over 100 repositories, those will be in that deep storage. So we're working with the South Carolinaana Library that our um, database can be converted to a finding aid that will allow researchers to discover that those documents are there. Um, They're they're a little 
issues that need to be addressed, such as getting permission from 100 repositories to allow researchers to use our collected on a camera or a phone digital image of their documents. But once that permission is granted, researchers will be able to put an inquiry in using the finding aid that our database will have generated and request an image of a document from around the world. So that even though you're retiring, there's, you're leaving a momentum with the project that will continue on. And I'm moving to Washington, D.C., um, to a retirement community there to be closer to my children, but I will continue to work through that last year, not as much. And then I hope I will volunteer at the Library of Congress Manuscript Division or the National Museum of American History or something that will be still historical and historian-oriented. Connie, the footprint is large, uh, the legacy lives on, and we have much to thank you for. But I'll end by saying thank you for being on Take in the South. We've learned a lot, and we really appreciate you being here. Well, thank you for having me. I love spreading the word. That was our Take on the South. Let us know yours. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at U of SC South. Take on the South is produced by Matt Simmons of the Institute for Southern Studies. Special thanks to Professor Dave Garner of the University of South Carolina School of Music for composing our music. Tune in next time for another Take on the South. <laughs>